1: Welcome to the New Books Network. The Magi, often called the Wise Men, are biblical characters that appear in 12 verses of the Gospel of Matthew, but nowhere else. The story is portrayed everywhere from nativity scenes across the world to references in pop culture films and more. Understanding and interpreting the story of the Magi, whether from an early Christian perspective or now in the modern day, has fascinated scholars, historians, and theologians for generations. This episode features a conversation with historian and associate professor of religion, Dr. Eric van den Eichel, regarding the new book, The Magi, who they were, how they've been remembered, and why they still fascinate, out now from Fortress Press. We discuss the origin of the Magi story, its enrichments and embellishments over time, and other representations of the Magi. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Eric Vandenichel. Dr. Eric Vandenichel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Greg. I'm delighted that you're here after years and years of interaction together on uh the on the internet. Uh here we are together in an actual podcast uh gathering. So I'm super delighted because this has been a really long time coming for how often we've interacted online and we've never actually hung out before. So this is for me a real thrill that we finally got ahead a reason to get a uh, get around to hanging out for real. Um so welcome and I'm wondering if you can just start off by introducing yourself a little bit to the audience, uh, however you see fit.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and thanks again for having me. I, I was looking back through our Twitter messages and I realized that I think we started talking about doing a podcast together um, literally several years ago. So uh, so it's nice to it's nice to finally meet you. So yeah. So I'm uh, Eric Vanden Eichel. I'm an associate professor of uh, religion at Ferrum College in Virginia. And I teach a little bit of everything there. I teach um, courses on religion in America and a lot of biblical studies, um, sometimes world religions, uh, occasionally Greek and um, let's see what else about me I got my PhD at Marquette University in Milwaukee in 2014. And my primary area of research is uh, early Christianity kind of broadly construed New Testament literature, post New Testament literature, those sorts of things.
1: Very cool. Well, since you've never been here before, I always like to have first time guests give a little bit of their own backstory as well, because, you know, being involved in the world of religious studies and biblical studies for a profession is that always leads to an interesting story for me that I love hearing. And so I'm wondering if you can just tell me a little bit more about that. Um what are some like turning points along your own path that led you into professionally pursuing biblical studies and early Christianity as as a job, as a profession for your life?
0: Sure. Yeah, so I was I was um li- like a lot of people in my field, not everyone, but a lot of people in my field, I was raised in a in a religious kind of household and raised united methodist and um i was always very interested in things related to religion i was always um, really interested in in the bible and uh i was one of those kids who signed up for the optional kind of bible studies at church um i was one of those uh kids who kind of occasionally got scolded for asking uh questions that were maybe outside the curriculum and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that uh give me a little bit of trouble and please don't bring him back. Um, no, I never got to that point. But I was always somebody who questions about these texts. And um so when I got to college and realized that, oh, there's classes that I can take on Bible. And so I started kind of taking those classes and and you know, I I I would see classes in religion that looked interesting. And so I just kind of, you know, take those. And then somebody says, oh, well, you've got enough to minor in religion. I said, oh, great. That sounds good.
1: Let's kind of dive a little bit more into why we're here. So we've got this uh, this new book that you've that you've just put out. Um, The book is out now, correct? The Magi? Yes, it was published in October. Okay, great. So we've got this new book, The Magi, who they were, how they've been remembered and why they still fascinate from Fortress Press. And I love the story in the beginning of the book where you talk about how the book uh, came to exist, how it was almost like this odd path that happened because of a conversation during the dissertation process. And I'm wondering if you can just tell that story a little bit because it was very fun and I enjoyed it a whole lot.
0: Sure. So I had invited my dissertation committee. Uh, out for dinner, and uh, I I wrote my dissertation on a text called the Proto-Gospel of James, which is a a primarily a story about the infancy and childhood and early life of Mary, Jesus's mother, and um, Jesus's birth happens towards the end of the text and then the Magi appear uh, towards the end of toward the, towards the end of the text as well, and uh, the dissertation doesn't really deal with uh, the end of the text as much as it does with the first um, like two thirds of it, and so one of my committee members said, you know, I, I, I've just kind of been fascinated by um, the Magi story in this text, and I'm kind of wondering why you didn't talk about it because, you know, they were noting that there's some idiosyncrasies in the story and. Um, And I said, well, you know, it doesn't, it didn't, it didn't really uh, fit with what I was trying to do in the dissertation, and it didn't really contribute anything. Um, And also, at the end of the day, you just can't do everything in dissertations. And I said, you know, I just kind of had to draw the line somewhere, and everyone's kind of nodded and like, yes. And, um, but I, but I kind of thought, and I said, you know, it would be interesting, though, to do, to write an entire book on the Magi, and kind of how how they've been understood through the years and you know kind of looking at that and my dissertation director kind of ripped me a little bit he says "Oh, I guess you found your your next book. Um, and I had read somewhere I can't even remember where it was now maybe a blog where uh, somebody gave the advice of when when you finish your dissertation uh, start immediately on something else something that is not a dissertation but something that's kind of. Um, you know, related something that you can spin out quickly, and uh, so I thought, you know that 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 sounds great. Anyway, so I was back in the library on Monday the next week, and um, you know, because I was like, what, a, what am I gonna do? Um, you know, I, I I'm I've been I've been working on this thing for like a year and a half, two years, and and the library is where I live, so it's like I just went back to the library, but it was so freeing, right? Because I didn't have a dissertation to research. So I just took all my books back to the to the circulation desk, and then I thought, well, maybe I'll just go and see what these you know books say about the magi, and and so I went and grabbed some commentaries, and and um, and uh, yeah, really the 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 story is that I was reading all these commentaries about you know what does this story in Matthew mean, and I was just like falling asleep reading them and going, I don't really think it's all that simple I mean there's the, the 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 explanations that I was reading were all uh very similar to one another and it was almost like everyone just sort of agreed on what this story uh meant. And so I kind of kept digging and I I found a bunch of stuff about like you know the magi were uh following a UFO and you know these kind of crazy things and yeah I kind of realized I was like, you know there's not a whole lot out there that really does a tries to do a fresh look at these, at these characters, um, using actual biblical scholarship. Um, but it also in a way that's kind of, um, you know, fun and accessible. And so, so that's where that, that's where the book started and that was back in 2014. Mm. Um, so it's, so it wasn't a, it didn't end up being a quick project, but it did end up being a fun project.
1: You know, you said a couple words there that I think are really important. You said what the story means. And also you call the Magi characters. So you've got this like literary way that you're talking about this story, which you do kind of get into in the book as well. You talk about how um, you teach the Bible as literature in your own courses. And as like a teacher who has taught like about the Bible and had students in a normal high school, read the Bible, um, I'm wondering to hear a little bit more about your, how you go like about thinking about this as literature, as opposed to how much, uh how much, how the rest, how a lot of people in the world think about the Bible, which is not necessarily as literature, but is like very historical with like a lot of very specific details. I'm wondering if you can kind of like differentiate those two for me a little bit before we dive into the, more about the book.
0: Absolutely. And this is a, yeah, this is a question I, I continue to struggle with in terms of how to convey this uh to to students so I teach um you know I teach biblical studies and early Christianity uh in the South and Mm -hmm. so I've got um but I but I also think that this is not a sentiment that's that only exists in the South uh but I would say probably most of my students uh are coming to my classes are coming with the assumption that what is in the Bible um must be, must be um, true in all respects. And what they mean by that is that it must be historically accurate in all respects. And so, you know, one of the things that I, that I kind of um, poke at them with is, well, so do we, do we assume the same thing about all literature? You know, if my student says, well, it's, this is, this is the Bible. um, It is, it is historically accurate in all respects. And I say, you know, do you feel the same thing? Do you feel the same way about uh about Homer's Odyssey um oh no uh do you feel the same way about the Quran uh, and the, and you know d- definitely no right and so <laughs> and so w- but we got to go through all these other texts that that um that are uh you know sort of literary and uh dealing with historical people and historical events and, you know, and I always try to get them to articulate, well, why is the Bible any different? And they say, well, because it is, and because we believe that it is. And it's like, okay, well, so the, the, the approach that I take is as literature, and I try to, I, I, I've, I've sort of adopted this approach um, just because I don't really have any interest in in doing a course in the entire semester saying everything in the Bible is false. Um, and nothing is historically accurate. Because that's not true. There's plenty of little little tidbits that are that match up with what we know about history. But but reading the Bible as literature um is an approach that focuses on what we can know uh and what we have access to. Mm. And so, you know, so so for example, and I make this point in the book, um, I, I don't personally think that the Magi were real people. Um, I think that this is a story that Matthew has either created or that he has inherited and he is just you know, telling the story. Uh, it's a legendary story from my perspective. But also, the point that I make in the book is that I don't actually care if it's a real story or not, like a like a historically accurate story, because that um, that event is inaccessible to us. Mm-hmm. You know, it, Jesus's birth. I mean, and I, I, I do believe that Jesus was a historical uh, person because I think that there's plenty of evidence for that. But Jesus's birth, um, there's as much archaeological evidence for jesus's birth as there is for your birth Mm -hmm. um you know so uh so i i mean i know for a fact that you that that you were born because you're you're sitting here on the screen in front of me but um but anyway the story of the of the magi if this if this is a historically accurate story then it is inaccessible to us we can't know anything about it outside of what we have in the text but lo and behold what we do have accessible to us is the text and so to say okay the historical strata uh that may underlie these texts is another question entirely let's focus on what we have in front of us let's focus on the story and figure out what that story means instead of trying to figure out did it actually happen because that's actually a pretty boring question but i agree that's interesting
1: Yeah. yeah Um so we we've got the Magi only in the Gospel of Matthew correctly they don't appear in any of the other gospels correct
0: correct they don't appear and they're never mentioned in any of the other gospels
1: okay so what I'm curious from you like since you um have you know examined this so deeply about the Gospel of Matthew what are some details that like, you think that everybody out there needs to know about the creation of the gospel of Matthew, just that one section? like, Tell us some some specifics that maybe we've never considered before about that actual book itself.
0: About Matthew as a whole, do you mean? Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think one of the really, really, uh, you know, a lot of l- listeners to your podcast are not going to be able to, are, are not going to need this reminder, but, but one of the really, really important things to keep in mind. Uh, when you're dealing with Matthew, or when you're dealing with really any New Testament text or any ancient text, is to realize that these texts are not written in English, um, and they are not written by people who would recognize really anything about our world, and 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 we recognize things about their world because we study their world historically, but they don't have access to our concerns they don't have access to our worldviews and so i think one of the big points that i like to to emphasize is that when we're dealing with matthew we are dealing with a very very old text Um, different concerns different lenses and also an entirely different kind of body of material than we're used to thinking about. And so what, you know, Matthew is drawing from and what he's, you know, the the literary tropes that he's using um, and kind of trying to figure that out. It's a lot more complicated um, than just simply, you know, reading reading the words on the page and just kind of free associating about them. so I think, you know, one of the things I like to keep in mind then is, you know, Matthew is writing uh, in the context of the Roman Empire, and so he is, that's very much, um, you know, uh, part of his his worldview, and in this section of of Matthew, I think the story of the Magi is, um, I, I think people often skip over the first part of Matthew, which is um, a dreadfully boring way to begin a book with the genealogy, right, of of Jesus. And people often skip over that and they kind of miss um, some of the points that Matthew might be making um, from it by including that. And so I think that's another um, big thing. In addition to Matthew being sort of uh, taking shape in this alien world, uh, Matthew is also crafting a bigger story. He's not just telling this little story that's completely isolated. It's connected with all of these other little things.
1: Mm, okay, cool. So, uh, I'm curious about what the word magi even means. I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about the the etymology of this word and kind of what you've discovered along the way of researching these these uh, characters so deeply. Sure. So the
0: the word the word that uh, that that I am that I chose to render just as as magi uh, is. The Greek word magoi, which is the plural, it's a it's actually an adjective. And so um magos is a is an adjective. It's sort of um roughly we could translate it, it's not a great translation, but roughly we could translate it as something like magical or something like that, right? And so the so the and the word magic is very much kind of related to that word, Um, but the magoi what what in the world is a mag a magos and who are magoi what sorts of people are they I mean that's the that's the ten million dollar question and one of the reasons that one of the reasons that I chose to just sort of leave it untranslated as magi is you know I'm not really sure. Um, I'm not really sure any of the English translations capture the fullness of that term. So, you know, some translations say astrologers, which doesn't really seem all that all that right. Uh, uh, Probably most commonly people know them as the wise men. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's and that that, that's sort of I think I mean, that's that's okay. But astrologers, wise men, I mean, why don't we just leave them as Magi and say um, these are kind of. Uh, these are uh, these are mysterious characters and there's a lot that we don't know about them Um, what we can know though talking about literature and talking about um, other ancient texts we can talk about the types of people that Magoi in other Greek literature are and so um, I look in one of the chapters in the book at a bunch of different uh, uh, ancient literature that deals with different people called Magoi and they are usually um religious professionals of some of of some degree. Uh, they do things like sacrifice, they do things like chant, um, they interpret dreams, uh, they are associated with kings, and they are often sort of advisory figures for uh for people in positions of power. Um, but they sort of are, you know, in the ancient world, there's kind of um in other literature, there's a sense that there are um you know, like formal Magoi who are kind of, um, you know, Persian priestly class, Mm -hmm. but then there's also some Magoi who are kind of like charlatans, like just magicians. So um, a great example of this is in the, uh, in the book of Acts, there's a couple of people who are, who are, um, who are talked about as, as being Magoi. One of them is, uh, um, uh, Simon, a guy named Simon, who is is not a good character. I mean, he's Luke doesn't Luke doesn't like that designation of Magos very much. But uh, Simon, and then another uh, guy named uh, Bar Jesus, uh, who the author also refers to as Elimus. Um, and both of these people are sort of you know Magoi, but in a sense that they are um, hucksters, right? They're 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 liars, and they're even demonic. Yeah. yeah. So it's the word is is complicated.
1: Yeah, you really wrestle with the with the importance of the Greek translation in the book a lot as well. Like I can tell that this is something that is very inaccessible to the ordinary reader of the Bible who totally takes for granted the, you know, the translations that are presented to them in a lot of ways and they don't really think about all the work that goes into creating those different translations and then how that how much that can shade your own understanding of what's actually in the stories and the variety that they can find if they were to look at several different versions side by side.
0: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I like to remind people of is, um, well, it's, you know, it's, it's good. It's good to know. I mean, as 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 a biblical scholar, it's good to know Greek. It's important to know Greek. Um, but also, when I'm when I'm talking with people about the New Testament, a lot of people will ask things like, "So, what does the Bible really say?" And it, almost like this sense that there's like a there's like a secret code, yeah, that I know how to break that nobody else does. And I always tell them like, "Well, so I mean," and 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 a lot of times they're asking me about. Uh, passages that deal with issues of morality that are hot button issues today. And they'll say, what does the Bible really say about this? And I'll say, I,
1: I mean, the English translation
0: is pretty close and our English translations are very good. And so it it's helpful to be able to see a bit of nuance here and there, but also, um, you know, what you're reading in your English translations uh, is 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 pretty good because people have wrestled with those questions and said, "All right, how are we going to deal with this word? How are we going to deal with that phrase?"
1: You know, I'm wondering about this lineage that Matthew includes in the beginning of the book as well, um, lineage tracing the lineage to King David, and I'm wondering, does that matter for the appearance of the Magi? Like, if that that lineage, because I know that they talked, you know, they there's an appearance of Herod and then Herod kind of freaks out a little bit. So is there an importance of that lineage that comes up in relation to the Magi story? Absolutely. I think, and I, I think that
0: the the genealogy uh, is probably one of the keys to really being able to see what Matthew is doing with the, with the Magi um, uh, characters. And so Matthew's genealogy and Matthew's not, um, Matthew is not a subtle author. And so uh, he, he, he does these kind of creative things, but then he tells his readers, like, look at this thing. It's almost like he's winking the entire way through. So he'll do this thing and then he'll be like, do you see what I just did? Are you paying attention? Mm. And, and, and the, the genealogy is a great example of this. So he has um, you know uh, these, the, the genealogies in three different chunks and there's, um, you know, 14 generations in each chunk. And so he's, you know, and he's like, so, you know, from this generation to this generation, 14, 14, 14, it's like, oh, hey, I wonder if the number 14 is significant for you, Matthew, is it? Mm. You know, oh, it, it oh, it turns out it is, like, turns out in if you take, <laughs> <laughs> right, it turns out if you take uh, the name David. In Hebrew, and you uh, and you and you add up the numerical values of the letters in David's name, it turns out you get. The number 14 hmm. and so and this isn't just crazy bible code stuff um all all alphabets the letters all have numerical values so in in the you know it, it, we, we talk about just in english using latin characters you know a is one b is two c is three etc so you know hebrew has the same thing and david's name adds up to 14 hmm. in, in hebrew um but also David happens to be the 14th character in the genealogy. It's like, oh my gosh, this is subtle as a sledgehammer. Thanks, wow. Matthew. Yeah. So it turns out Matthew was trying to tell a story about David. And um, but the genealogy tells a story about that middle uh group of 14 who are all kings, starting with David and David's descendants. And then that lineage sort of ends with the Babylonian exile. And uh I think the story that that, that Matthew is telling is that Jesus is as a heir to David, like, you know, Jesus has David in his family tree. I think the story that Matthew is telling is that Jesus is the new Davidic King, that he is the rightful King of the Judeans. Mm. And I think that sort of comes out when you look at the genealogy, but it really comes out when the Magi come to Herod, Because they're, you know, the star that they see, right? It's they they say, oh my gosh, there's a, you know, there's a new king of the Judeans. So where do we go? Well, we go to Jerusalem. That's where we go to to find the king of the Judeans. And so they go and they say, we're looking for the one born king of the Judeans. And Herod's like, I mean, in the in the story, it's very clear. He's like, well, it's not me, (laughs) right? (laughs) Well, but but the funny thing is, right, is that Herod actually is the king of the Judeans, Um, but. The, the the trick is that Herod is not the rightful king of the Judeans. Mm. So Herod receives this title, king of the Judeans, from the Roman Senate. And we hear about this from uh, the Greek historian, uh, uh, Jewish and Greek historian, uh, Josephus. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, Herod receives this title from the Roman Senate, because Herod's not even a Judean. Herod is an Idumean. And so when the Magi show up in Matthew and say, we're looking for the one born king of the Judeans. What they're saying is we're looking for the real king of the Judeans. And Herod asks his advisors, all right, where is the Messiah? Where is the Christ to be born? And this is another Davidic um, kind of illusion. And they say, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, which again, subtle as a sledgehammer. Bethlehem is also where David was born. So, So there's all these connections that come out that are just David, 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 and the Magi bring that dynamic
1: out. So, is that what the purpose of the Magi characters is for Matthew and his earliest readers? Is bringing that connection together?
0: So, one of the things I'm always very careful about is speaking with certainty and saying this is absolutely what Matthew meant. I think that um I think there's a good chance that the that the story exists for that reason. Um, but I also think that these uh magi figures um not only do they exist to bring out that kind of Davidic um those Davidic themes because um, you know those are there. and really any character could have brought out those 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 themes by showing up to, to to Herod and saying, where's the one born king of the Judeans? Matthew made a choice to refer to these guys, these characters as Magi. So he picked that loaded term. And so I think that not only do do they exist to bring out that Davidic theme, but I think they also exist to validate Jesus's kingship. And so that is one of the things we see in other ancient literature uh, that, that mentions Magoi is that they are um, they are they are in the presence of the kings right and they're advising the kings and they are paying tribute to the kings and all of that stuff and so i think matthew sees them as oh magoi come to the king of the of the judeans and they are sort of not only bringing out the davidic undertones but they are validating his kingship as the legitimate one
1: Gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, uh, there's something, a term in the book that I really loved, and that's cultural encyclopedia. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about this concept, because I think that'll help us understand our world and Matthew's world a little more clearly, um, just to kind of bring that in. So I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about how this really matters for how we read it versus how Matthew may have written it
0: right um so the cultural
1: encyclopedia
0: is um one of probably it, it was it was one of the biggest kind of eye-opening uh things that i discovered when i was looking at my when i was doing my dissertation research on the proto gospel of james and the cultural encyclopedia it's one of those things i wish i had coined that that terminology myself but it comes mm. from it comes from the work of umberto echo and um uh and his you know he's probably known in in various circles for different things in my field he's known as as a kind of literary critic and and semiotics and all this stuff and then he's also known as a novelist so he's written you know Foucault's Pendulum and then probably the best known because this has a movie made after it is um the name of the Rose. Mm-hmm. Um, and the name of the Rose actually has a really interesting allusion to the cultural encyclopedia. Uh, it's the, the library that they have to navigate um, is a kind of a metaphor for the cultural encyclopedia. But um, the cultural encyclopedia is, um, this is gonna sound like I'm really overstating the matter a lot, but the cultural encyclopedia is essentially the entirety of all knowledge that is available to a group at any given time. So like today, there's a cultural encyclopedia today And you and I are having a pleasant conversation, which means that we are both familiar with certain parts of it and probably similar parts of it. So things that deal with religion. Um, I'll go out on a limb and guess that we probably have um, seen a lot of the same television shows. Those are all part of the broader cultural encyclopedia. And so... um, when we are dealing with uh literary texts and so matthew has a cultural encyclopedia as well and all of his readers do as well and so it's and and it's basically every all knowledge in the first century mediterranean world which is a lot and that's not to say that matthew is familiar with all of it but matthew um Matthew's familiar with his with his corner of it and his readers are familiar with their corners of it and so the what when you're dealing with a literary text like Matthew the cultural encyclopedia is the bigger is the bigger picture and then the literary text is the guide through um it, it, through that encyclopedia and so Matthew is uh, if you think about maybe this as a almost like a forest Matthew is using his gospel To lead readers through a various path in the forest, and to say, you know, um, you know, this is this is the path that the story is taking, and um, you know, sometimes we sort of recognize, like if Matthew is 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 citing something from um, Daniel, right? That's that is part of Matthew's cultural encyclopedia that he's familiar with, and that's part of that's part of his route through the encyclopedias mm. is, is like Daniel, um, or, um, or, you know, stories about David or whatever. And so, um, you, you know, but the, the, the literary text sort of becomes the guide through that cultural encyclopedia. And then once we figure out, um, what parts the author is familiar with, we can then also branch out and say, I wonder what, I wonder if the author is also aware of what's in this room. And what's in this room right so if you if you um figure out that 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 matthew is familiar with like septuagint daniel which he probably is because he quotes it um (laughs) then well let's look at other texts that are in the septuagint and say you know what which of these is matthew also kind of playing with and so the cultural encyclopedia is is too big for anyone to talk about but that one path through it that the text kind of provides you that helps you to learn what is the author familiar with, and what sorts of things can we put their text in conversation with?
1: Awesome. Well, that's really wonderful. and i'll I'll never go i'll I'll never skip an opportunity to tell people if they never if they've never read Umberto Echo to check out how to spot a fascist because that is an amazing essay collection that mm-hmm. i will I will recommend forever. Um so I'm so glad that name came up because i'll I cannot skip over that suggestion. but you know you you talk about some of these things that pop up along the way to change the way people think about the Bible, as we add to our cultural encyclopedia, if you will. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned in the very beginning of the book, Jesse Lyman Hurlbut's Life of Christ for young and old based on the gospel narrative, which is a book I'd never heard of, but the way you talk about it is super interesting. And the idea of becoming of the familiar becoming unfamiliar Mm -hmm resonated a lot with me because there are things that people do over time to insert new stuff into these stories that we then take for granted appear in the original but they actually don't and i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how these things that people sneak in how they tend to become permanent fixtures in stories even though they don't really appear in the original source maybe sometimes they do but like a lot of times they don't cuz it's a super interesting phenomenon
0: absolutely and the the hurlbert the hurlbut book is um is sort of it's near and dear to my heart because uh it i the 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 copy of it that i have somewhere around here is um actually belonged to my grandmother and when i was uh not maybe last summer when i was visiting with my parents and there was a little pile of books that that belong to her and she passed away several years ago, but there was a little pile of books that belonged to her. And I was, and I was looking, I was like, Oh, I remember this book. And so I picked it up and I thought, well, I'm working on a book on the Magi. I wonder what this book says about the Magi, And so, you know, kind of looking at all of these details that he adds, like all of these little conversations and whatever, but, um, yeah, the little pieces that we read in to these stories and, and just, you know, there's a couple of different ways that this happens. I think, I mean, One way is that people like Hurlbut, who is, I think, good natured. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing he's doing that's that's nefarious. He's trying to be helpful. He's he's trying to tell these stories in a way that's engaging for people and, and young people. I mean, that's his that's his goal. So he's so he's kind of adding details here and there, and adding conversations, and adding you know you know the reactions to things or whatever. But um, so people do that, like he's done. But also, there's other other ways that people fill in these details that aren't there. That's just a product of reading. And so you know, for example, uh, if you read if we switch gospels and look at another birth story, if you look at the Gospel according to Luke. And if I, if, you know, when I ask my students, so in Luke, where is Jesus born? And they always, they always say he's born in a stable, right? Well, and I tell them, it's like, no, there is no stable in the gospel of Luke. And they, they look at me like I'm nuts. They're like, no, there definitely is. There's a stable in the gospel of Luke. I said, find, find it, right? <laughs> so They go, they go back and they look and they're like, there's no stable in the gospel of Luke. That's amazing. And maybe some of your podcast listeners right now are going, wait, there's no stable in the
1: gospel of Luke? No.
0: (laughs) And it's not in Matthew either, right? So where did it come from? Well, it comes from in Luke, where does Mary put Jesus to go to sleep? She puts him into a feeding trough. Where do you find a feeding trough? Uh, You could find one in a stable. You could also find one in an alley, or you could find one out in a field, in a cave somewhere, or something like that. But the way that that has been understood is oh a feeding trough ergo they're in a stable or whatever Mm. and then that detail just kind of gets absorbed and then you get it reinforced through traditional christmas stories and nativities right where they're always in a stable um sometimes in a cave which is another fun story from the proto gospel of james but um but you know they're, they're, they're always in the stable and then everything else kind of gets mashed in. So the 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 nativity story that 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 plays out in your manger or your um uh, in your in your nativity scene on your mantle, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in the in the New Testament because you have a stable, you have magi, you have shepherds, you have a star. Um, none of these things exist at, in that form, right? They're all combined and our brains do the work of combining those stories.
1: Amazing. I, I just, that is just so mind blowing considering the way that so many of us grew up going to churches and like seeing that like play out in front of our very eyes for years and years. And then to be like, wait a second, this is uh, not actually written in this detail. So this is a very uh, interesting creation. Mm-hmm. Um, And other things, other representations in the world exist too. Like you mentioned life of Brian for Monty Python and the way that like Magi appear in these things. Are there like pop culture references that um that you've found along the way through researching Magi as well to kind of pop up throughout film and literature and TV or whatever? Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that the Magi have sort of become, I mean, it, they're they're very iconic, right? And so when you see a a a silhouette of like three ornately dressed people riding camels and there's a star anywhere and you say what is this right right people even who haven't gone to church are going to say oh that's the the three wise men another yeah. detail that we incorporate Matthew never says there's three of them Matthew says there's three gifts, and mm. so you know we sort of like we incorporate that detail as well now does matthew imagine that there's three of them yeah probably but he doesn't actually say three of them he says three gifts but um no other other sorts of pop culture i mean the life of brian is a great example of this um you know these they they very much fit that kind of uh common conception of 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 the magi i always enjoy uh the memes that start coming out around this time of year where uh you know there's uh well, and I, I I ripped off one of these things for a chapter heading, but uh, but wait, there's myrrh. Like, yeah. you know, we brought golden frankincense, but wait, there's myrrh. Um, so but yeah, they they sort of um they they do become kind of like uh yeah, almost like pop culture sort of figures, right? And and uh um and then they also they also become sort of the butt of jokes, right? Like who brings who brings frankincense to a baby or who brings myrrh to a baby like these are not practical gifts and
1: so I know and i'm i'm thinking that a lot of people might not even know what those things are you know. Right
0: well and that's one of the reasons I I translated in this book um, frankincense, which is normally. Um, how it's translated I, I just i translated it just as incense because that's what it is it's incense from the frankincense tree um but yeah what is what is myrrh um what is frankincense people know what gold is yeah but uh but these other things you know who who brings you know and and it's like with with monty with with life of brian monty python you know <laughs> you know don't bother with the myrrh next time you know?
1: <laughs> so, yeah have you um have you done any uh, travels yourself to any magi related places? Like, I know that there's like, you know, f- frescoes and paintings and stuff like that. Have you gone to any like major travel that you've incorporated some, you know, of your own tourism into stuff like this?
0: yeah the uh, there's a lot of really really cool magi stuff uh in rome actually and i, I actually there's a lot of fun i got to take a group of students to rome this uh past april and may and uh, i had just a couple of months previous to that I, submitted this manuscript and so i had um i was very much magi on my mind (laughs) Uh, so so when we got to our hotel which was uh which was about three quarters of a mile down the street from a really really beautiful church in rome called santa maria maggiore and there's these gorgeous uh mosaics the in the church of santa maria maggiore and so as soon as we checked into our hotel the students were like hey we need to go get sim cards for our phones i said perfect because there's a there's a sim card store right up the road and then we can go into santa maria maggiore and see the magi because there's these real and they're dressed um they're really dressed colorfully in this in this uh in that, in that mosaic. Um, And then we also went to, well, while while on that trip, we went to the catacomb of Priscilla, um, which has the earliest um, painting of the Magi uh, in, in a little, a little room called the Greek chapel, which is really, really beautiful.
1: So you just mentioned Maggiore and that's, I believe one of the towns I, I, there's a town on the Cinque Terre trail called Rio Maggiore and that I, I went there years and years ago, and I'm wondering, is Maggiore like derivative of Magi is like, are those two things connected? Oh, probably not. I think Maggiore
0: here just means major, like big. Oh, so like, OK. So like Santa Maria Maggiore is is the Basilica of St. Mary Um major so it's a major basilica and so i think if you have the rio maggiore it's probably just the big river
1: okay gotcha gotcha
0: yeah i hadn't thought about that before but that's that's interesting yeah
1: um, so there's some, some blurbs on the back of the book, uh, from some past guests, of the podcast, Brent Landau and Shaley Patel, both mm-hmm. blurb the book and they've both been on the show before. Um, I'm wondering if you have any like, you know, shout outs or anything for people who, uh, had a, had a process or had a hand in like looking through some of your work and like talking about this while you were on this writing journey.
0: Oh my gosh. I mean, basically anyone that I've spent more than an hour with in the past, like, two or three years has has gotten an earful about the magi uh but you know brent uh brent is 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 kind of uh, i mean i i have not met anyone who knows as much about the magi in kind of syriac traditions and and you know i've learned so much from his work and i've learned a lot from talking to him about uh his work and about these about these characters uh shaley was actually kind enough to look over um, some of the stuff that i was sent her and i said you know i, I need i need somebody who you know she does you know, ancient uh, you know magic in, in yeah. the ancient world and i said i i need somebody to look at this to let me know and just reassure me that i'm not saying anything that's going to get me <laughs> blacklisted right or, or whatever um but no I, I i really i have a um i have a debt Uh, an unpayable debt to a number of people uh who have listened to me just kind of go on and on about about the magi but um every and everyone in the everyone who who blurbed the book is a great example of people who have just listened to me talk uh, about them and connect really anything that I could think
1: of to the Magi for, for several years now. Amazing. What are you envisioning next? Do you have like some future projects that you're kind of starting to toss around in your mind now that this book has like come to reality in the world?
0: Yeah. One of the things that I'm, that I'm really, really interested in and I'm kind of in the stages of just collecting data and thinking about data. Um, I would really love to do a a more extended look at the magi in, in artistic kind of representations, like not only frescoes and mosaics, but one of the places that they pop up a lot is in funeral um, kind of not monuments, but, but um, uh, caskets and sarcophagi. Mm. So there's lots of, you know, if you go to uh, one of the Vatican museums that has a lot of pieces of kind of Christian uh sarcophagi uh, from the catacombs uh and other and other just burial sites of uh, the magi are are frequent characters on the sides of sarcophagi and so you know why why are they why why put them there uh and um you know jonah is is another great example of a of a, of a story that kind of gets gets put in and associated with death um and that that sort of seems a little bit more obvious right jonah goes into the belly of a fish and dies and well sort of you know that's kind of how how um the new testament sort of portrays it he goes into the belly of the earth or whatever and then he comes back to life so you know why would you why would you not put that on your casket if you're hoping for resurrection at some point well Jonah's a great example but why the mage guy right like why these guys and i think i read somewhere somebody suggested that people saw them as symbols of generosity and so they wanted their coffins to um to testify to their own generosity or something like that like i was a generous a generous person as well but i would i really really want to do um a more extended study of where they pop up and stuff like that
1: very cool uh you know now that i'm looking at the cover the cover of the book is absolutely really cool and i'm wondering if you have any backstory behind uh, the the three images that are on the front cover and if there's anything specific or unique about this particular depiction that's on the front cover of the book,
0: so I can't remember exactly where uh, I can't remember exactly the the. Um, uh, the artifact that those images come from, but I know I found it. Um, it is a it's a reliquary so it's a um something that probably held pieces of somebody's body or something um and the people at fortress took the little individual magi, but it's another example of the magi on funerary uh art and so uh, they they kind of clipped them out and used little pieces from the reliquary to accent the book so every little bit of gold that's on the book is all taken from this reliquary but there's a picture of it that i found um i believe on wikimedia and um so there's there actually there are pictures of it out there but uh but no when they when they showed me the cover and said you know what do you think about this cover i was like oh that's really really cool where do these guys come from and so we kind of went went looking for the looking for the image but yeah i love I love what they've done with the with the little the little figures and putting them into the ads and they're like peeking out from behind the book stuff. It's just adorable.
1: Awesome. Well, Eric, this is a, a really accessible book. I'm really enjoying it. I'm still reading it. I'm really enjoying it. And I think it's accessible to you know, the high school students that I'm envisioning whenever I'm processing books like this, I'm like, would I be able to put this in front of a high school student? And I think the answer is a resounding yes. Mm -hmm. So if any educators out there are listening, um, this would be a really great thing to put in front of the eyes of teenagers, um, but also, you know, older, older folks as well and older readers would be totally on board with this too. So I think this book is fantastic. And it's called the Magi, who they were, how they've been remembered and why they still fascinate, from Fortress Press. And you can find it wherever you get books. But Eric, where can people find you if they want to follow along with what you do in the future? Uh,
0: Well, as as controversial as it sounds right now, you can find me on Twitter, at (laughs) at least as long as it exists. But um, Twitter is probably the place that I'm the most active in terms of my popular scholarship and and kind of engaging. But I also welcome uh, emails and and things like that.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I know it's been a long time coming, but I'm really grateful to you for your time and for uh, chatting with me about this brand new book, The Major. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you, Greg. I've enjoyed it.